the, the key thing will be when the questions of social justice are given equal prominence to the kind of technical changes that we see, you know, when we're looking at climate questions around whether, you know, climate change, water, etc. Hey everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode. This week we are joined by Dr. Marcus Taylor, who is a professor at Queen's University and actually one of Sandrine and I's professors this semester. Dr. Taylor focuses his research on political ecology, agricultural studies, and climate change, and explores the dynamic interplay between government policies, food production, environmental change, and rural livelihoods. Sandrine will be joining us today for this talk as we speak to Professor Taylor about climate change, the idea that those who contribute the least to the problems are those who are affected by its outcomes the most, and also the fact that we are running out of water. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram at the.progressreport to keep up with all things going on. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Taylor, so much for joining Sandrine and I um, this morning and agreeing to speak with us. And we are incredibly grateful um, that you're taking time out of your very busy schedule to do this. No, it's a pleasure. <laughs> um, well, today we really want to focus on kind of two kinds two topics. Um, The first being the idea that I've recently come to realize after taking many global development courses here at Queen's so far, and that is the notion that in relation to climate change, those who are feeling its effects the most are those who are contributing to it the least. And the fact that, frankly, we're running out of water. Oh, so a positive, uplifting conversation to start the day, hey? <laughs> yes, <laughs> hopefully it'll get a little more uplifting towards the end, but... Um, yes, indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. But yeah, big questions, big questions. <laughs> um, so, and obviously two very connected questions, so so that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, to start off, can you briefly, if possible, uh, break down kind of climate change and what makes it the biggest global challenge right now for our generation? Right. Yes. Um, I think the, 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 the reason that climate change is sort of the, the big macro question is because it works through everything else. It, it, impacts everything else. So if we take every other sort of challenge and issue that we were facing and then sort of think, hold on here, now we've got to, you know, build climate change impacts, stresses and shocks into that already existing challenge. So this is one of the things, sometimes people think, sort of conceive of climate change as one more thing, as, as another thing that needs to be added on to the list that we're dealing with, etc. But, but that kind of mistakes the, the nature of the issue because it works through everything else. So it works through water, as you were saying, it works through agriculture, even if we're looking at questions of housing, it's the question of, all right, now, you know, before we might have just thought about, right, there's not enough good housing, there's not enough housing availability, whether we're talking Toronto, or whether we're talking Dakar in Bangladesh, you know, what are the questions of housing, now we've got to think, all right, but on top of that, how would the housing deal with climate 
stresses such as extreme heat, if we're talking Dhaka, extreme rainfall, and that would apply to Toronto as well, right? So, you know, um, so it's it's the, it's the way that, that climate change is going to work through all the existing challenges and, and change the parameters in which we're addressing all of them. And obviously, some of the, the key touchstones are the way that climate change impacts upon agriculture, because that clearly impacts our food security. And uh, there's a lot of discussion about how fragile uh, the global food system will be, because if prices go up, then, you know, prices go tend to go up globally. And there's many people living who are just above the line where they can just about get the nutrition they need. And there's plenty below it as well. So, you know, uh, very different. So food system is going to be one. Water as well, obviously. And you, you flagged that one. And water is going to be huge. Uh, water for, on the one hand, we see the interconnectedness again. Water for agriculture. Agriculture takes the majority of fresh water on the planet, goes to producing the food, fuel, fiber, crops we need, um, but also uh, water for consumption uh, and also water for industry. And what we're going to see increasingly is potential for conflict over different aims of what that water should be aimed for. And that creates so many challenges for planning and it, and it will sharpen the co- conflicts. You know, uh, many of our current ways of dealing with water, whether they're more or less inadequate, you know, um, and even globally these issues open up right so the question of water in, in that is tied in and of course it is is, is one thing in the in urban areas where many urban areas don't have access in particularly thinking in the large sort of uh, mega cities and slums so yeah so you, you've got water you've got agriculture and then you've got the impact on natural ecosystems such as forests etc and you can start to see that every single issue mm-hmm. that we looked at and that we saw as a challenge however we came at it suddenly got a whole lot more complicated and arguably a little more difficult more definitely more challenging right yeah so this is yeah this is why um climate change for me it sort of overlaps all these things and works through them and creates uh you know some significant challenges on that that sort of score yeah no thank you for that that was awesome and i think it's really important for people to understand just how interconnected like you said everything was and how fragile really everything is and Um, The reason that I asked you for that is just because a lot of people understand what climate change is and to some extent what it entails, but always hearing it from somebody else and especially a professor like yourself can possibly like make something else stick. And it's just good to hear it again and have a refresher before we dive into some of the other stuff. And moving on to kind of like the impacts that you were talking about, um, something that really kind of almost breaks my heart is that those who really contribute the least to climate change um, and these emissions are the ones that are feeling its effects the most and um, kind of what specifically this entails in relation of like access to goods, uh, agricultural demand, daily life and things Mm -hmm. um, that we in the global north would not necessarily think about. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering what your yeah. opinion on this notion was. Well, you know, climate change raises all kinds of ethical, all kinds of justice questions. So obviously, you know, 
that there's a couple of debates going on and, and these get quite complex, but to try and sort of break it down to the nuts and bolts of it, there's debate over historical emissions. So if we look historically, the countries that we could broadly call the West have historically emitted a whole lot of emissions, right? And, and this is, you know, part of pursuing pursuing industrialization, development, modernity. It was all powered by hydrocarbons. And so, you know, if we look at historical emissions, the West, in order to power its development, is, you know, has, has used massive amounts of fossil fuel stocks. Uh, and this is often one argument that goes on. Okay, so countries in developing world sort of say, hold on, you burnt through all that. You know, fossil fuels acted like a, an accelerant to processes of development of structural transformation of your economies and societies, etc. So you deal with the climate problem while we still do a bit of that developing, etc. But at the same time, uh, those countries that, feel the, that are going to feel the strongest impacts of this are often those that have actually done least of those uh, um, emissions historically and in the present. Uh, the other thing, if we look come to the present, we could say, all right, a country such as China now has you know very large emissions. It depends whether you weighed it per country. So you know, China and the U.S. and, and Canada. Uh, sorry, China and the U.S. You know, two major emitters. But if you're looking on per capita, so how many? So the total emissions divided amount of people in the country. China is still fairly minor. Uh, it's just got a huge population so compared to say Canada, Australia, U.S. and some European countries that are really high per capita emitters. So depending on how you look it up, but but the broad point is that particularly if you look at the countries where the kinds of shocks and stresses we're talking about, whether it's impact on the water system, whether it's impact upon agriculture, whether it's impact upon urban heat waves and so forth, are often those that are neither in the past nor in the present high emitters. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that double whammy, and that is certainly you know is is acknowledged in the international community in the kinds of Paris Accord and so forth. There's provisions to say okay, those countries in the West particularly need to create funds and money to provide funds for what they call adaptation, adapting to climate change, to uh, what they would say is, uh, you know, less developed countries. Um, but is the sums are debated, the sums are probably really huge, and they're not really being paid quite frankly, certainly not on the scale that kind of transfers to deal with what the impacts will be. And so we're really sort of sticking in the bank a lot of greenhouse gases, which are going to continue heating the planet for quite a while. So things, even if we cut down our emissions now, things are still going to get worse in terms of heating over the next couple of decades, regardless of that. And that's not an argument to say we don't need to do anything. On the contrary, I'm just saying we've already put so much darn greenhouse gases in the bank that, that even when we start getting it out, it, uh-huh. it's it's still going to heat, right? So it actually expresses the emergency of, of really getting to grips with this. Thank you for that explanation. It's really interesting to hear um, about your perspective and what you think and um, the research that you've done about this and especially because I don't think it's something that um, we consider a lot especially on a day-to-day basis all these um, interconnected effects and different levels of ways that people are affected by um, 
daily um, habits by people in the global north uh, for Mm -hmm. the most part. So thank you for that. Um, And kind of if we can maybe discuss like a manifestation of this and connect it specifically to uh, water and agriculture and with agriculture being the biggest use of water on the Mm -hmm. planet and the fact that we're running out of it on one hand, but also the need to meet the demand of of feeding a growing population that will be at about 9 billion by 2040. Um, I think that's uh, a huge alarm to me. And also the fact that 1 billion people don't have access to clean water, Mm. which is like one almost going to be one in nine people. And so that's just something that blows my mind. And also um, I'm just really interested to hear what you think of this um, and the problem of water scarcity. You bet. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we we think of food and we think of water and we talk about scarcity. And it's true that under current setups, many people are food and water scarce, right? They don't have access. Uh, It's very difficult. At the same time, we, we currently produce enough food to feed everyone. It just isn't going to to where it needs to be, uh, and 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 that's you know at a global level we definitely produce enough food to feed everyone. So so on the one hand, sometimes we can get oh you know it's climate and it's a growing population and this and 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 uh, but we've got to actually also look at the 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 the, the social, political, and economic systems that distribute food and water at the moment are very very uneven, and they put a lot of food and water into what could be termed very wasteful things and, and food it's very obvious there is a lot of wastage of food right in 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 in, in the restaurant systems in 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 um the way supermarkets operate and and, and so forth that's not just to say that it would be easy just to transfer that to to the mouths that that need it and so forth it's it's very complicated but um you know sometimes people sort of think oh uh you know it's just a problem of climate change well, actually it's a problem that the system's already not particularly working the been fairly inefficient at getting food where it needs to already and climate change is now exacerbating this and and similarly with water you know um there is plenty of water there but where it is going is uh not always uh where perhaps from um a more ethical position (laughs) it should be going right so for for example i mean much of the work that i do um in terms of research is focused in in india on questions of agriculture and water so you know you're asking the kind of things that i uh, i like to talk about so um for sure and you know the, the, here it raises uh, questions that, that that there is already a feeling of, of water scarcity in india but there's certainly some communities that have no problem accessing major amounts of water and whether that's for sort of uh, residential thing i mean we can see this from everywhere from you know canada to india where there's some people that have pools and etc you know whereas others not too far away can be water scarce right so there's that kind of justice question of where existing water is going and then there's you know questions about uh this outside of sort of individuals and and consumption so forth about how much water goes for industry versus vis-a-vis how much water goes for agriculture vis-a-vis how much goes for household consumption and the kind of infrastructures uh, that move water around to, to do that. So if, if I give you an example from 
from India. Um, at, there's uh, in, in India, many farmers are reliant firstly on, on the rains, so particularly the monsoon rains uh, when they come if they come. And obviously, this is when we're talking weather extremes, more volatile weather. You know, I'm always stunned at how well adapted Indian farmers are to dealing with volatile weather, weather uncertainties and so forth. And they sort of have it built into their farming strategies, many of them, the, you know, one in four, one in five years, the, the rains will more or less fail, that they'll be bad. The trouble is with climate change, Sometimes now you don't just get one year, you get two years in a row where the monsoons don't come, they don't manifest, or they're late, or they're normal, but then they suddenly stop halfway through, or they, uh, or you get these like crazy storms at the end of the season, which destroy crops, etc. That's kind of volatility. Now, these things could have always happened. It's just the frequency of the volatile weather, which is means that the sort of ways of dealing with them no longer seem adequate. And farmers are really sort of sort of scared about you know how exposed they are to these this kind of weather volatility. So many of them um, have uh, availed of drilling down into the ground below their fields, and they extract groundwater, which is a very good idea. So if you imagine you know when it rains, part of that water soaks into the soil, etc., and part of it's used by plants and what have you, and parts it runs ponds, lakes, rivers, etc. But some of it just soaks down into the ground, much of it and accumulates there. So pretty much wherever we are, below the ground, there's like uh, in amongst all the rocks and that, there's kind of big lakes, underground lakes called aquifers. So farmers will dig down and they'll drill a well and they'll try and get down to that and then they'll pump it out. And that 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 means they're less sort of vulnerable to the changing monsoon. But obviously the water down below is a bit finite as well. And what we're finding in India at the moment is the bigger, or sorry, the deeper you can drill your well. If you can out-drill your neighbors and get down real deep, uh, then you can kind of suck out the bottom of that lake and deplete the water ahead of anyone else around you. And once the water's gone, it's gone. So if you can get down much deeper, you're in, you, you can actually sort of take the water out literally from under the feet of your neighbors because, you know, all the, the, these big lakes are connected. And we're finding, obviously, to drill and to put this kind of infrastructure in, in rural Indian terms, is very expensive. And farmers are going to debt to buy these drillings. So they, they, there's a, a huge drilling truck that comes along and they go down and they drill, 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 and they hope to hit the water. And if you can afford to employ a sort of um, a geophysicist to scan the earth, then you can probably make sure you hit the water. Most farmers do not have that. They use, uh, you know, downing rods or, or coconuts, etc. And whether these are uh, sort of uh, kind of a fantasy that they can tell where the water is or or, or whether there's anything to it, it's beyond my capacity. But I do know that that, that farmers don't hit water almost as often as they do, but they still have to pay for the drilling. So they go into debt. And then what we're finding recently is the actually sort of industri more industrial kind of units come into an area where there's a lot of farmers doing this kind of competitive drilling thing, and then they sink a really big well, and they just pipe up the water and they'll sell up some of it to the farmers, even though it was watered below their fields. But most of it, they just actually piping up, 
they're putting it in huge tankers, and then they take it to the towns and sell it to other people there. And suddenly you've got this kind of thing where everyone's bidding on water. And this obviously gets more and more acute when you follow a season of drought, because if there's been a season of drought, there isn't much water soaked into the um, in, into the you know the aquifers below the surface. So they're already kind of only partly full. They haven't replenished. And then you've got these people coming along and sort of grabbing the water. So, you know, farmers are struggling amongst themselves to try and get it. And then you get outside people coming in and just grabbing it and hauling it off to the biggest, the, 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 the richest bidder. So the justice questions are mixed up in the climate change questions, mixed up in the water questions. And this is very going to be very typical. I mean, it, these, some of these things already existed prior to the real strong climate change effect. But once again, climate change makes it even more tricky, even more difficult to, to deal with. And so, so that, that's a kind of example of some of the issues uh, are going on. Um, and they're really thorny, messy issues uh, to deal with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when you were talking about the aquifers, that reminded me um, when we were talking about water in class last week and that... Um, these aquifers have taken hundreds of thousands of years of um, mm -hmm. to develop and accumulate all this water. And we have dried up some of them in um, one singular generation. <laughs> um, there is definitely some of that going on. Yes. Yeah. And so that is just something that also kind of puts into perspective of how fast things are changing for me um, yeah. and realizing um, that this is, a serious issue yeah you know it's one of those things where whereby sometimes uh people find a resource and they just start using it and then everyone starts using it without much thought of how sustainable it is yes. quite the issues we're sort of talking about yeah yeah and i really appreciate you talking on those two topics and you brought up so many um amazing and informative points um and very interesting and i know that some people will be surprised by some of the things you said because i know that i was um and they were all very very wonderful so thank you um oh, no and i think sandrine has a yeah. couple questions now. um so i know like in our class that we've talked about uh, different perspectives and different responses and their idea of what mm -hmm. where to go from here essentially um but just curious who is there any person in particular or any initiative in particular that you want to highlight or someone you looked up to that has either you know inspired you in your research or maybe the research that they do themselves on you know combating climate change and tackling these big issues yeah well my goodness there's um I mean, there's, you know, there's there's a lot going on, and there's there's people that take influence from both in our home communities and also where I do research. I mean, uh, again, I think I sort of gave a, a hint of this. I, I've, you know, encountered so many incredibly resourceful people working in agriculture in India, and uh, I'm just astounded by the ability of some of these farmers, and both male and female farmers, that struggle against such odds um, in the way that they produce amazing crops year after year from the land that are that go for both their own families uh, and then they're sold more widely and some of them are doing really innovative things 
and and the most interesting things tend to happen is when you get the scientists actually take the time to listen to the farmers and start working with them and going all right let's 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 take what you're saying as a starting point and let's see how we as scientists can actually help you because far 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 too often it's the other way around those with expertise come in and say hey be quiet everyone listen to what we're saying this is what you need to do and sometimes that does work but you know i've seen so many projects where i go in afterwards and research what happened whereby the the supposed recipients of this expertise said you know what we did it while they were here for two years partly because they gave us some extra subsidies to do this and so forth but as soon as they left we didn't continue with it It wasn't right for us it didn't work with our social systems it didn't work with how we want to farm and so forth and there's a real question of not listening so you see this kind of thing where the expertise and and, and believe me scientifically it's brilliant what they're doing but there's sometimes a bit of a gap between you know what can work in a university lab and a university farm vis-a-vis how you know the farmers themselves can or cannot trans translate those kind of innovations those kind of technologies into their own day-to-day month-to-month year-to-year context and we have to listen to to to, to farmers but it is 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 difficult yeah and it's a difficult conversation to have but i'm always in awe of those that are pushing it along so uh, sorry, I, I went a fair way from your original question there, but um, that's that's uh, that's <laughs> no, that's all right. where I ended up. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think you bring up a really important point that you have to to pay attention and look at what's actually happening to the people who are being affected, like on the ground, who have to live with the situation, like you were talking about the farmers, um, and they have to like adapt and deal with the situation. So I think that's really an important um, perspective to look at. Um, to shift kind of a bit um as a student myself and obviously like jasmine as well um we're always wondering like what we can do to to make a difference and i know that this is like a common feeling amongst a lot of people um so i guess my question would be how how can students or just people in general use their voices in the most effective ways possible to to combat this well i think we need to you know there's multiple things we can do it we can look at the sort of individual lifestyle choices right and and those are important uh, and we can you know we there there are tools so we can calculate our own carbon budgets on a kind of individual level and try and take steps to reduce them uh, I mean obviously in, in that respect uh, what we eat is is important uh, some some foods are way more carbon intensive than others and I, I imagine you guys have a sense of what there is um, you know uh, I, I still eat a little meat, but I've cut it way down um, and and so forth. Uh, eat, looking at what we eat is really important. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to eat everything local. Um, sometimes that's not the answer, but increasing the amount of local we eat is generally good. Eating in season uh, is good, you know. Uh, so, so that's an issue. So, yes, there can be individual things. I mean, you know, I stopped. I stopped taking. Um, I, I, I get invited to give talks quite a lot i mean covid notwithstanding and you know i i i a couple of years back said you know yeah i'd love to fly to city x and give this talk but that's just not 
that's not on. We can do it via Zoom. And I think, you know, a very, very, very small beneficial thing of the pandemic has been that now everyone, no one can say, no, it doesn't work. But actually, it, it does allow a form of interconnectedness and sharing of ideas uh, and networks to form over wider spaces without necessary carbon impact. But I mean, you know, we can all re- reduce our individual uh, consumption or uh, targeted towards reducing emissions and so forth. Um, at a at a social level, obviously, because indivi- you know making those individual changes is is, is good, is positive, etc. But it's it's not going to cut it. So we need to pressure our respective governments to try and implement as bold a transition transformation program as possible. And it really means the trouble is things lock in very quickly. So you know every time a municipality sorry a municipality sort of builds a new housing project, if they haven't already sort of thought where do we need to be ten years now in terms of how this operates in terms of emissions and 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 um you know efficiency standards etc then it gets built and it's locked in for the next you know however many decades so they need to be thinking ahead right at the moment you really would like every decision on every building whether it's retrofitting upgrading new buildings etc to be really geared towards what's necessary like in 20 years time to meet sort of carbon commitments and there is some of this they're, they're, they're you know they're, they're trying to implement geothermal power systems such so it is going but it's, it's it's always held prisoner to whether someone up above says oh yeah there is money for that now um, to kind of have my last sort of question for you um, if there's one sort of brief thing that you could tell our listeners to inspire them to sort of remind them how important this issue is and what we're doing to fight it what would you have to say about that Okay, well, that, that's, yeah, that's a big one. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's very easy to get very down on everything because there seem to be so many compounding issues and so forth. But, you know, at the same time, I think humans as a species have proved themselves to be remarkably innovative remarkably resilient in some ways good in some ways you know just being able to put up with a lot of things like, like i say i'm i'm astounded by the resiliency that that farmers working with very little put etc and it can hopefully inspire us to think that we can make big changes and we can make them relatively fast and and i, I mentioned it earlier that i was very relieved to read the reports that say hold on we do feel that if we scale down emissions we can get the climate change issue under control better and quicker than previously imagined. Now, we're a long way from doing that, but it actually says, okay, you know what, if we find a way to summon the collective political will, and, you know, the the other thing here is that it, it really will change the way we think about what we do and how we live from day to day, et cetera. But there are opportunities in that as well you know, to rethink, you know, what we value as societies. And sometimes that could be very productive. <laughs> Some of the ways we've been doing things, you look back and you go, oh my God, you know, why are we trapped into wasting so many resources over this and that, right? I mean, some, you know, so maybe there are ways to, to move forward, to, to, to both scale back in some areas and to investigate new ways of, of, of thinking about societies, how they operate, etc. It's, it's, it's a time when we need big picture thinking. And, and so, you know, it can happen, but there has to be a political will and there has to be a thing. And that's the biggest challenge, not the technology, etc. I mean, yeah, there's lots of technological challenges as well, but I actually think we can handle those. I think the technologies can and will 
exists. It's the political will that we got to work on. And that's that's a different one, but that is something that can change. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that's inspiring enough, but that's where I am. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. Thank you. Um Thank you, Sandrine, for asking those questions. Um, and then also that kind of ties into the last question that I like to ask everybody. And um, that is what does progress mean or look like to you? And so for this episode specifically in the realm of climate justice, sustainability, water management, um, mm. that kind of uh, broad topics, um, yeah. what does progress look like to you? Okay. Wow, that's a that's a meaty question. That could take its own episode. <laughs> um, you know what? I I think progress will happen. And for me, I'm just talking from my own you know personal perspective. The, the key thing will be when the questions of social justice are given equal prominence to the kind of technical changes that we see, you know, when we're looking at climate questions around whether, you know, climate change, water, etc. And very often in the moment, governments and energy use and so forth, very often at the moment, governments tend to sort of say, all right, we need to, you know, do this kind of technical program to fix this issue and so forth. And that, that happens a lot. And it, and for governments and political agencies and so forth, that's, it makes it more manageable to make everything very sort of technical. We just need this kind of fix here and this fix here. But from everything that I've been talking about today, the kind of equity and justice questions are very much part of this, right? I don't think personally they can be taken out of it. Otherwise you end up with solutions and I'm using solutions in quote, which are solutions for some, but really miss the mark for others. And very often those that mix, misses the marks for are those that had the least influence and power to get their, you know, voice heard, and they tend to take the brunt of things. So, um, so when we reach a point where we can't have a conversation about climate change, water, food, agriculture, without simultaneously considering the technical, technological aspects alongside the social justice issues, I think that is a progress thing that's both achievable and it's starting to happen and it's uneven, but it is there. And there's a lot of people pushing for this kind of realization. But when, when it just becomes a matter of fact, I think we'll have made a good deal of progress and it's achievable in that respect. So um, that's a small <laughs> goal, perhaps given, you know, but I think if we get there first, then we're at least headed in the right direction for the rest of all the challenges. No, that's great. Thank you. And I think um, that's a lot easier for some people to grasp that concept um, than it may be to grasp some of the the more technical fixes that are proposed. Um, so no, thank you. That talk was a really amazing. And I know that there's so many great points in there um, and just information that people including myself, did not know before. And so I really hope that um, people will get a lot out of this. Um, Sandra, well, did cool. you want to say anything? Yeah. No, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know that, you know, with everything, we have lots going on. But yeah, that was awesome. So yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you yeah, very much. Thank you very I, much. I really appreciate you guys um, doing this podcast and, and yeah. getting ideas and perspectives out there and, and so forth. It's super to see it. Yeah, thank and, you. Um, thank you so much. Listen, 
if you're any of your listeners are at Queens, come come take a class. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. And I feel very privileged to be able to say that we have class with you and we get to be able to learn from you for this entire semester. So yeah. thank you so much for this, Dr. Taylor. It was truly a pleasure. Wonderful. All right. Thanks, thank guys. You. I have will see day. you later on, no doubt. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> take Bye. care. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you everyone so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as we did recording it and speaking with Professor Taylor. Don't forget to go to the website www.theprogressreportmedia.com to read Sandrine's blog post next week and we will be seeing everyone back here again the following week. If you want to get in touch with us or send us any questions, you can email us theprogressreportmedia at gmail.com and we hope that you learned something new and helpful this week and feel inspired to take action. Thank you. Thank you.